we're just getting ready to sing Old Lang Syne and promise to go to the gym more so that can only mean one thing it's that time of year to talk about predictions for the next year well on this episode of Sideload we've got three very good spokespeople who are talking all about their predictions for 2019 as well as looking back at what's happened over the last year as well welcome to episode 31 of Sideload Welcome to Sideload, a technology podcast from Edelman, London. I'm Jermaine Dallas and on the show today we're taking a look into the next 12 months with our 2019 predictions. Every year Edelman hosts the Crystal Ball event where we gather together a panel of leading thinkers to discuss their forecast for the next year. Uh, this year's event took place the other day on the 4th of December and it was hosted by the BBC's Kirsty Walk. And one of the panellists from that event is one of the guests on the show today. Ed Williams is the CEO of Edelman UK and he's never short of a bold prediction or two. During his tenure at the helm of Edelman UK, he's been responsible for the firm becoming the biggest agency in its class by revenue. Ed is joined by Lucy Thomas. Lucy advises clients on Brexit and other political issues. Before Edelman, she was the deputy director of the Remain campaign during the EU referendum. And completing our star-studded panel today is Ben Fenton. Ben heads up Edelman's Creative Industries offering, and previously he was the FT's chief media correspondent. Ed, Lucy, Ben, thanks so much for joining us on, on the show. Thank Good you. Good to be here. Excellent. So before we go into 2019, let's start with this year. So what's been the biggest lessons that we've learned in 2018? Ed, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the biggest lesson in 2018, and frankly, it's true of 17 as well, is we've just got to stop making predictions. And that's probably... <laughs> that's podcast probably, over there. <laughs> that's why we should just finish this podcast at sort of one minute in. Because really, the truth is, the predictions game was always quite difficult, but it's becoming even harder now. And, um, you know, it's often, I think, the case of whatever you think, um, then, you know, imagine the opposite, and that's probably what's likely to happen. Um, so, I mean, I think that is one of, one, of, one of the things that really strikes me, is just this kind of, you know, this, this issue and the, the problem in trying to predict the, the future and try to kind of second guess what's happening, in, particularly in politics, but Lucy's more of an expert on that than me. I mean, the other, the other thing I would point to is just, and it's an overused term, but it's absolutely so true of, our, uh, of where we are in life at the moment, is disruption. And you're seeing disruption in kind of every walk of life, in every industry, in every sector, um, you know, really across so many parts of um, life as we know it. And I think this year we've just seen even more kind of disruption. I mean, the, obviously the big topic as we run into 2019 is, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a lot during this podcast, is Brexit. And that really reflects a profound piece of political disruption. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll hold that thought. We're going to get to Brexit later on. Uh, Lucy, what have you seen in 2018? I think actually to Ed's point there is this real sense um, and it's both sort of disruption and also don't make predictions but this sense of empowerment and people all feeling that they can have their voices heard. I think actually this is an after effect of Brexit that people felt you know we could take back control and actually the establishment will listen to us mm -hmm. and so you're seeing that whether it's on the Remain side or on the Leave side or loads of issues people are getting involved um, and from a business perspective that's true 
you know, consumers will, whether they're positive about your company or what you're doing or negative, they will be active online. So look at the Nike campaign with Colin Kaepernick, for example. You know, really, companies being really bold and taking a stand and getting involved in a, in a highly political topic, you can then mobilise your consumers almost like activists for you. Ben, what, what have you seen this year? I think the, um, to pick up on the points that Ed and Lucy have made, you know, one person's empowerment is another person's disruption. And the effects of the internet clearly have been, to use a very media phrase, to disintermediate. Uh, that's to, to say, to remove the gap and the distance between the mass of people and the producers of power, of content, of all of the things that previously were, they were separated from. So in electoral terms, the mass of people used to have a say every four or five years when the Prime Minister called an election. Now they have it every second that they want to because they can express themselves through social media. And the key thing is, politicians are listening to them. Politicians care what is said on social media. Arguably they shouldn't. The same applies to business where consumers have the ability to trash a product or a brand's reputation in a matter of hours, whereas they could only do that previously with a consumer boycott, which was one of the rarest things you, you ever came across in the world. And in my part of the world, in the media, everyone's a journalist and everyone's a publisher now. And they have taken away, the internet has taken away, the ability of the media to be special. And that has profound consequences for the world that we live in, because you remember Michael Gove's famous this country's had enough of experts remark I mean literally we can all afford to dispense with experts because we can choose our own expertise and offer our own expertise and everything is lost in the noise that results from that uh, just just on that point I think there there is one other um, issue which kind of brings together a lot of that and social media and people expressing themselves and so on but almost the other way round in terms of political campaigning so the Cambridge Analytica scandal and that coming to light and Facebook suddenly being accountable um, for a lot of these issues I think it was interesting to see finally if you like a, a figurehead in front of a, a sort of um, a congress committee and being asked these questions directly by politicians. Well let, let's move into 2019 then. So Ed you sat on the you, you sat on the panel the other day for the um, crystal ball event. Uh, yes. What were some of the, the predictions that you made on that panel? So look I, I made um, a number of predictions and as I think you said in your intro some sometimes uh, you know some are bolder than others so I, I talked about an enormous kind of breadth of things from both um, you know some predictions on the tech side and then some uh, predictions on the uh, political side and as I've already you know explained in this podcast you know a fool makes predictions so I'm not really enormously um, confident to go on at this stage but as it's you I'll have a go so um, so, to, really, it's not really a prediction, it's more of a forecast. So let's call it a forecast instead. The first thing I talked about was um, about what is, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually quite a new topic to me, and it's only really talking to um, 
some people over the last kind of few weeks or so that I've really started to understand it. But it's this massive revolution that we're about to experience in food production and particularly in uh, in essentially growing either plant-based protein or meat-based protein in laboratories. Okay, so this is essentially taking you know this taking a stem cell from a chicken feather and being able to grow chicken nuggets right it sounds absolutely crazy this is bizarre it sounds scientific <laughs> it sounds completely mad it also sounds you know inedible <laughs> none of those things are true um so about gosh about five years ago in 2013 the first lab based or lab grown burger was manufactured it was the first burger ever grown in a test tube in the world i think it happened in maastricht or somewhere like that in europe plenty of another there's another reason for why we should stay in Europe um, lab, or not. Lab, 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 <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if it's part of the common agricultural policy or not at uh, lab growing meat anyway anyway I digress five years ago a laboratory in Europe northern Europe grows this lab um, uh, lab grown burger it costs 213 thousand pounds to grow a burger right and this is an edible piece of meat put it between two buns looks like a burger tastes like a burger um, today or this year it now costs eight pounds to grow a lab-based burger so it's oh. gone from 213,000 pounds to eight pounds following exactly the same pattern that you know about of course in technology which is you double the double the production and half the cost and that's exactly what's happening um, in this industry and if you think about a few things firstly if you think about the massive population explosion that we are going to well we've had we have experienced over the, the last um 25 years and what we're going to experience between now and 2050 when there's going to be 2.3 billion people on the planet the the um the idea or the notion that actually we can feed people using meat that we grow in laboratories rather than through traditional livestock and um, abattoirs and so on is I think really quite exciting particularly if which what if by the you know 2023 2025 lab grown meat clean meat is what they also call it is going to actually be cheaper than real meat if you like now it's already available in supermarkets and which I, supermarkets in the UK in the yeah there's I think it's Asda actually have a clean meat burger which is a um, laboratory grown burger um, they don't, you know, from, look, I haven't tried one yet. I think probably, to, you know, uh, before I, you know, if I talk further on this, I ought to actually have a go, uh, you know, um, ought to have a go at one. But I gather that, you know, they're not like the kind of old, you know, gnawing on a piece of cardboard experience that you might have had with um, alternatives to me. Anyway, that was my first prediction, was actually this huge explosion in... Um, uh, in lab-grown meat and how that is going to really create this extraordinary wave of change um, in terms of the food industry. I'm hugely sceptical. Why? <laughs> Why are you sceptical? Because um, the arguments you, you've made are mostly around cost and I don't yeah. think cost is going to be the concern. I think it's going to be the fact that people are already worried about people using chemicals yeah. in actual animals in, yeah. in the food production. Yeah. But what's going to happen when it's not even animals, it's just chemicals? I think that might be a bit too far for these people. are sort of animals they've just never breathed yeah that's the that's, that's the, the point they've never been brought into life 
and more to the point for the environment, they've never ex exuded methane. So, so, so I think Ben is right. I think there's a really interesting case to be made around the environmental benefit of growing meat in a laboratory versus actually having to have industrial farming on the scale that we do and all of the um, associated environmental impacts of that. So I think the environment case is really interesting. I mean, your, what you touch on um, about concerns around um, kind of GM, um, this sort of GM influence on food, I think ultimately we've got to get over that. I've clearly got a long way to go to convince you. Other other prediction that you um, that you came out with? Look, the other prediction, and I think we're probably going to talk about this a little bit more um, during this discussion, is around um, voice-activated devices. And um, look, next year is the I think it's the 70th anniversary of um, George Orwell's 1984, uh, which obviously was um, you know the first piece of popular fiction. Um, that um, really raised public concerns and issues around the surveillance state in a kind of mean meaningful um, way. So it's 70 years old next year, the book. And I think it's interesting that um, we'll, we'll, we'll see that anniversary at a time that you know, many devices in the home are going to start having voice-activated capabilities built into them. So not just Alexa, um, or um, the Google devices or others, but actually other appliances. And the question I posed yesterday actually was, look, if we started calling these, these devices listening devices rather than voice-activated devices, how do we feel about them? And this is not to say that these devices have any um, uh, kind of malign intent far from it. I think they're designed to actually make our lives easier and simpler and as shortcuts for many activities in the home. But as we've seen, and Lucy made this point about Facebook, as we've you know, experienced and seen ourselves over the last year or so, there are often unintended consequences um, associated with the introduction of really transformative tech. And so the point I made, or, and will continue to make, is look, I think there is a conversation to be had about the, this technology. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, will we see a scandal in 2019 where, you know, voice-activated device has been used uh, by bad actors? I don't know, but it's going to happen at some point. And I think like all tech, I think the, you know, the white hats, if you like, need to be able to adopt and think through the capabilities of the black hats so they can design technology in a way that is able to mitigate and at least um, uh, protect us from some of the worst excesses. Yeah, I, I, my particular added prediction on that is yeah. that in 2019... Forecast we'll, or prediction, Ben? Pr prediction. Prediction? prediction. <laughs> right, okay. Prediction. By the end of 2019, Alexa will have been called as a witness in a divorce action in the High Court. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let, let, let me ask... Not in my home. <laughs> let me ask um, this to you one. then, um, <laughs> Lucy, about, about voice assistants. Do you, do you think they're going to be genuinely useful in 2019, or are they just going to be a creepy gimmick? So I think, um, 
I mean, to me, it's about kind of behaviour change and what seems normal, a normal thing to do. And I think people, generally, human behaviour takes a while to adapt to things. So there will be people for whom, when remote controls were introduced with TVs, that already was a bit of a step and a bit different for them. And so this is a whole other layer. I am used to... Just talking about you, Ben. To, yeah. <laughs> to, you know, to turn I'm on my... To sue. <laughs> <laughs> to turn on my appliance or to, you know, I quite like going over to my coffee machine and pressing a button and getting my mug out of the cupboard and those sorts of things so so I think it's a question of where people find utility in these kind of things so if you're somebody who likes um, that kind of a shortcut I think it'll work well but I don't think um, it will necessarily be that speedy. We're going to delve into the thorny issue of Brexit, but first let's take oh, a no, quick... Oh no, not Brexit. <laughs> it is but... the news killer. Yeah. <laughs> but before we get there, we're going to take a quick time out and revisit the last episode of Sideload, where we talked about how voice assistants are changing the news. People talk about, by 2022, 50% of all searches will be voice. It's a stat that's always over the internet. I have no idea where it comes from. I also don't believe it. I think I think that is way over over the odds. But we are definitely going to see more voice searches. And in fact, you know, if you talk to a room full of people now and say, "Are you uh, using voice search?" and they will come back with loads of, of, of occasions where they will ask for directions. For example, they'll put their phones up, or they'll ask their headphones, uh, they'll ask Siri. There's a huge amount of this already going on. And the question is, when you get beyond directions, when you get to news, if you say, uh, what's the latest on Brexit, which brand is going to give you that answer? Is it going to be a brand? Is it going to be an aggregator like Google that tells you what's, what's happening with Brexit? How, do you, how could you envisage a version of Google News, which of course has a list of different options for you to choose, in voice, you have to come back with, the, with one, yeah. and the machine has to decide. listening to Sideload and we are talking all about the future, specifically 2019. We've got our crystal balls out to do so. I've still got Edelman UK CEO Ed Williams and Senior Directors Lucy Thomas and Ben Fenton in the studio with me. So let me ask this then, um, automation continues to be a major talking point. Should we be worried about the economy and how it could be affected if we're all replaced by robots? Lucy, can I start with you on this one? Sure. I mean, I, my instinct is always, hopefully, there will have to be a layer of human judgment at some stage. So already in lots of industries, you are seeing automation, whether it's sort of robotics in, in terms of manufacturing or auditing, for example, as really complex AI tools being used um, to do huge volumes of work, um, huge volumes of data, and clearly they can achieve a lot more, a lot more quickly but that doesn't account for anomalies or where some sort of a judgment is needed. My sense is that's always going to have to be there um, at some level. And I think actually the challenge for all of us is knowing that this is coming, knowing that things will be made more efficient by um, automation in lots of different ways, the job actually for us is to find ways that these jobs are extra, that they're over and above. It's not about replacement, but it's about using these tools and finding other ways to deploy those unique human characteristics to jobs so that it isn't just, oh, we're victims of this change, 
actually what is it that we can do differently and to the point about sort of disruption and innovation it's a it's an opportunity for us to look to new ways of doing things if our time is freed up from doing um, you know monotonous or repetitive challenges actually let's find a way of doing something better Ed you're the CEO of a, a company that has I don't know five six hundred people what do you see of the future where where they, those people could be replaced or enhanced or what what's the future look like for you so I think Lucy talks a lot of sense on on this issue I mean my my belief is we've got a we've got to start to look at this question through a much more positive lens, which is, I think, you know, AI, machine learning, automation, the, you, I think these are innovations um, that are going to ultimately change the way that we all work. And um, they're going to do it, obviously, in an extremely um, profound way. And we're seeing it across all kinds of industries, as Lucy sets out from manufacturing to professional services and it is accelerating. But I think the really exciting thing to think about and talk about is what is the human plus machine going to look like? So when the human works with the machine, what are the outcomes that we can achieve that we weren't able to achieve beforehand? And that's when I think it gets really kind of quite exciting and interesting for companies and for society more generally. My sort of note, note of caution about it is whether whether we've really um, thought enough and have got the kind of policy um, the policy ideas around particularly around education so that the you know those who are in education at the moment are actually going to be able to interact and work with the machine in a way to achieve those quite exciting outcomes and the reason I I raise this. I was at um, breakfast recently with a client of ours who's the CEO of Draper Labs. He used to run DARPA, which is the um, innovation um, arm of the Defence Department in the, in the US. And I, and I said to Ken, you know, should I be teaching my son, who's six, coding? And he said no. And I was quite surprised by that answer. Why, why should I not be teaching my son coding? Do you know the answer to that? Uh, well, in your case, it's because you don't know how to code yourself, mate. But, you say uh, that. <laughs> I'm a man of many Sorry, I, last time I checked, you yeah. didn't code. So, uh. No, the, actual, the reason, actually, he's, he said no is because we're not far off, actually, machines writing the algorithms. So, the, tr you know, the truth of, of, um, of, of, of coding now is that actually the human being, the coder, if you like, is going to be automated away. And there are many reasons why that is a good thing, Ken said, not least because the vast majority of cyber attacks happen because of human error in writing the code. And the machine will actually be able to work that human error out. It's no different from the human error associated with car accidents that in time, um, uh, um, self-driving vehicles will actually you know will essentially um, drive out kind of human error so that's going to happen in coding now my you know my, my question then or bigger question is are we do we have the right education policy um, and the right understanding the kind of uh, uh, Ken's level of understanding 
uh, about what the future holds and are we actually shaping our education policy and we are, are we teaching kids in a way that they can actually really interact with the machine and do all the incredible things that I think we potentially could do. Mm. On this question, yeah. the first thing I would like to teach our children is something that I've tried to teach mine, which is just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. should. Yeah. And I think we need to think very hard about what we automate in life. I'd sort of go a little bit further and to say just because we can do something doesn't mean we have to. Mm. The only reason for doing things which automation makes more efficient is to make more money. And if we are actually not wishing to create a society in which people have very little purpose in their lives because everything is being done for them, then I think we have to think very hard about whether we actually want to create machines that replace human beings or let human beings do jobs that they find to be rewarding and just good for their souls, if you like. So, you know, it's easy to make predictions about the future. I, I read something recently about a, a, a sort of an OCR scanned uh, legal paper where mm. the, the, the machine found 95% of the mistakes that have been deliberately introduced into a 200-page legal document. Mm -hmm. No human being scored better than 87. Yes. So, technically, a machine was better than a lawyer. Now, I'm prepared to listen to that argument, but I do think that there are many other areas in which we ought to be thinking, not about the can, but the should. But isn't the point... I, I agree, but I... I, I I do and I don't, Ben. I, I disagree that it's... I mean, maybe you're not entirely saying this, but that this is all driven by an, um, a desire to achieve a greater return. No, no, I'm that not saying that it is. I'm saying that if, because it, if it is, it's yeah. the wrong motivation. Yeah, of course. And we need if, to think more broadly about how we apply technology to yeah. our lives. Yeah. But, if you know, think about um, the... Uh, machine learning and automation we're seeing in hospitals now um, and it's both on the kind of high-tech um, life-saving life side where you've got machines that are far better at spotting particular types of cancer than the human eye which has been the machines have just trained to be better um, to automation which means that actually when it comes to scheduling booking appointments, the logistics around running a healthcare system, actually a lot of that can be taken away from the human being and put in the, in the machine, machine's hand, allowing there to be the resource that was spent in that area oh, absolutely. Um, and put, you know, deployed in the front line instead. Absolutely. I'm not so, a Luddite. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use technology, we should always defer to the human interest. Yeah. But I am saying that there are areas where it's obvious that it's just been a wrong idea to use machinery. Take for instance, the way in which social media platforms have tried to use algorithms to determine what kind of content yeah. is acceptable and what isn't. Sure. Machines can't do that. Machines don't think, they calculate. Yeah. And so they don't feel, they don't know stuff that we know. And they can't always bring the right information to bear, so they're always going to be values that only human beings can apply. But it's, it's back to this um, question again about, uh, you know, the. Uh, the point around unintended consequences. So if you, you know, one of the most brilliant kind of algorithmic inventions uh, of recent years, it, it, we first saw on Amazon, which is, you know, you like this book, you probably like that book as well. So serving up, right, options to you based on past behavior, right, that's 
fantastic. I mean, that's great. I didn't know that book was written, or I didn't know that author had just published it. Brilliant. The problem, of course, is when that is used to reinforce people's um, uh, attitude to certain public issues. That's <laughs> kind of what we've seen in Brexit, right? Which yeah. is it's been self-reinforcing. Confirmation yeah. bias. Confirmation bias, yeah. Exactly that. Writ large. Exactly. Yeah. And if you look at all of the polling consistently since the referendum campaign, each section is all the more dug in than they were. Yeah. You know, the, the hardcore at each end is as hard as it was. There are those in the middle flowing between. Um, but actually this this really dangerous situation that Ben alludes to, which is people living in their silos and almost never being touched by other views and when they are reinforcing your own reactions and your own views anyway which then the, the bigger point and the most worrying democratically for me is how do you ever run a campaign which touches people outside of your base or of the other view mm. because if you are self-selecting your news if it, if you are not um, for example watching a bulletin which is going to feed you up the journalist selection but you pick your news from online whatever yeah. gets pushed into your feed which aligns to your views um, or you pick whatever from online yourself you could possibly never ever come into contact yeah. with alternative views or in an authoritative way um, and that must be dangerous it also means that the greatest attention which is what everybody is is about in the in a world measured in numbers the greatest attention the greatest amount of dwell time the greatest number of hits comes from putting out extreme messages mm -hmm. so the center gets lost so actually using what a very traditional British politics of, sort of quiet compromise and, and little fudges in the middle, uh, you know, in in, in, in smoke-filled rooms, doesn't work. You won't get any attention for that. You only get attention for shouting, not for speaking quietly, but speaking sense. Well, we've we've just touched on Brexit, so we've started to like we might as well finish as the saying goes. So. Um, uh, Lucy, I know this is this is your your strong point, and you start to rub your hands when you talk about Brexit. <laughs> so, w will Brexit be a destabilizing factor in twenty nineteen? Uh, if it hasn't been already, um, I think yeah. I think look, unfortunately for all of us, Brexit is not going to be over anytime soon. Uh, in theory, we should be leaving in March, um, with or without a deal. Uh, there's been a court case this week which says the UK can unilaterally say, hang on a minute, we want to pause this whole process. I don't think we will, uh, but it's possible that we could. Um, and even if we do leave in March, then it's actually on to the real negotiations for what the long-term relationship will look like. Um, so the short answer is the, the negotiations and the political ramifications will carry on long into 2019. Um, but then we also see what happens with the government. Um, because Theresa May has had one hell of a, one hell of a couple of years um, trying to get this deal done and now we're seeing that really bearing fruit in terms of now it's hitting Parliament, there is no real majority, certainly for her version, um, the real race against time is what can she get through Parliament, does she go back to Brussels to try and renegotiate, um, but even if she does and even if she gets a deal through all of the leadership contenders are licking their lips and waiting for the moment that they can topple her and take over and get their Brexit. So my sense slightly is that um, we ain't seen nothing yet. There was well, that polling, did you, sorry Jim, did you see that polling today that showed that you know, there was, the majority of British people are against no deal. The majority of British people are against 
Theresa May's deal. The majority of British people are against a second referendum. The majority of British people are against remaining in the EU. The only thing they're in favour of is renegotiating a deal with the EU which we know is never going to happen. The really depressing thing about that is that I think it's probably reflected in Parliament too. There is no majority mm. for any sensible outcome from, from all this and that's not great. Mm. I mean, the, the, for me, the, the most depressing thing about all of this is this sense that actually there's no obvious resolution um, ahead of us, certainly not in 2019. It's the most divisive public issue I've ever encountered in my entire career. Well, let's let's end on a, a, a positive note. Um, in one sentence or two, um, what are you most looking forward to in 2019? Ed, do you want to kick us off? Um, I mean, the truth is, I mean, back on this debate about Brexit, we'll kind of know, I hope, <laughs> where we are come yeah. March, yeah. right? Oh, and um, potentially before then, right? So. You know, if there's in any way that we might be able to, at least from a news agenda, put this to bed, um, I think it's a really, you know, it's really important. So what am I looking forward to in 2019? I'm looking forward to, to government and many other people getting back to the business that they have not been paying attention to over the last few years, which is education policy, health policy, dealing with some of the, those issues that we've been talking about. And actually the news agenda as well, moving beyond Brexit, because I don't know about the three of you, um, I mean, I have got Brexit fatigue. And, um, you know, if I'm suffering from, uh, uh, you know, too much Brexit, if you like, God knows what others are watching, you know, are, are, are watching and feeling. Um, so, look, let's, let's hope that 19 allows us to some extent to accelerate beyond Brexit and have a bigger conversation about some other topics. Mm. Ben, what are you looking forward to? Well, it's an easy one for me. I'm looking forward to my uh, success in my campaign to persuade the Irish government to allow me to have Irish citizenship <laughs> and therefore to Ireland winning the Rugby World Cup in 2019 or, if I fail in the first one, to England winning the World Cup in 2019. And then for you, uh, Lucy. Well, well, I look forward to Wales winning the uh, the Rugby World Cup in 2019. <laughs> Is any this likely? Is it going to happen? Oh, I mean, God knows. Yeah, yeah. well, my one dad of those would say three yes. Will, will almost certainly win it, <laughs> as long as New Zealand don't turn up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, but more seriously, I think um, to Ed's point, I think more certainty for business around Brexit we will know more what the direction of travel is and I think that just allows people to get on um, and focus on other things and in a funny way I think I mean despite having been so heavily involved in the Remain campaign um, I have always thought we need to get on with it and we also need to look for the opportunities um, and you know we've talked a lot about kind of disruption and innovation and so on and actually let's use this as a way to look for new and different ways of doing things because there will be as well as the Brexit deal we will then be looking at de trade deals with the rest of the world for example and actually what are all those new trading partners um, and ways that we can rethink and actually Britain can you know, be great and, and be the innovator that, that we know we can be. 
Brilliant. Well, on that note, I think we will call it a day. So, Ed, Lucy, Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And a big thanks to you for listening to this episode of Sideload. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to get in touch, send us an email to sideload at edelman.com. See you next time.